Hey, y'all, and welcome to the very first episode of the Crude Audacity podcast, the podcast that talks shop shit and all things strategy with oil patch influencers. I am your host, Katherine Mills. I'm a reservoir engineer with a focus on advanced characterization. Today, I am so thrilled, not only because it is the very first official episode of the Crude Audacity, but for today's influencer. Known mainly for his interdisciplinary work and research in advanced reservoir analytics, he has tackled all corners of our matrix, from completions and reservoir, geomechanics, geology, even petrophysics. He really has done and seen it all, and all for the purposes of seismic to simulation AOI evaluations. Y'all, please help me welcome the man, the myth, the legend, Mr. Baloo Sharon. <laughs> Thanks, Cap. <laughs> You know, technical guys don't like uh, introductions like that. <laughs> well, thank you for joining the Crude Audacity today. Thank you. <laughs> so, real talk. When I texted you and told you that I had started a podcast, what was your impression? <laughs> I mean, I, I was actually impressed. Uh, I oh. mean, I thought that was something different. Uh, you, you always do stuff that's very different. and. Uh, I like that. <laughs> yeah, so uh, I didn't think, uh, I, I don't think there was a single negative thought that came out. I think there was. I was hoping to was shock curious. you. I was hoping to shock you just a little bit. No, I think, uh, <laughs> I think uh, I've seen enough of you where I know that uh, that threshold is, uh, needs to be a lot higher. I'm actually lucky with all of my launch episodes. Everyone kind of knows me, so they know what to expect there just a little bit. I haven't had any t too much shock value just yet. Good. So when I texted you that you were going to be my, I don't think I asked. I literally texted you and said you're going to be my first uh, interview. <laughs> what was that impression? Um, I was like, I think you can do better. <laughs> 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 that, that was honestly my first impression. I was like, you're not going to get too much ratings from that. But, uh, yeah, I, I think I, I see your lineup now, and I think, yes, you're going to get a lot more ratings. <laughs> well, thank you so much. So today, you know that we are going to kick all of this off by talking about market, industry trends, and ripple effects. But before we do, we need to talk about you. Because you, Blue, are a true disruptor. You have like turned heads, you have challenged the powers that be, you have thrown away the rule book. And you've done so because of your experiences in this industry, how you got started, and really what has motivated you. So before we s jump into all of my questions, sure. can you please take us through how you became you, how you ascended the roles, and go into detail back before uni started? Like, How did you decide on oil? So yeah, I think uh, I was born in a in, in a country called Zambia, uh, which is I know Zambia. <laughs> not many people know that. So yeah, it's uh, down in southern Africa. Um, I bounced between Zambia, the UK, South Africa. Grew up quite a bit in South Africa, and I saw a lot of change uh, through all of those countries in terms of political unrest. Uh, some groups benefits and some groups don't. Similar to what we're seeing now? Um, yeah, I think a little bit more extreme. Uh, yeah. I would say, uh, I think, a look at things in those days and those times uh, makes me sometimes look at what we're doing now. Uh, I think sometimes we are oversensitive, which may be good. It's, it's like when you grow up in a country where crime is very high, uh, when I first came to the U.S. and I saw news about one person dying, uh, <laughs> I was surprised. Uh, but then I realized that uh, there's a lot more value for life, right? Mm -hmm. So 
you can look at things uh, differently from that perspective. So I think growing up uh, as a kid, uh, you always had to uh, work hard to stand out uh, amongst the rest. <clears throat> I always say I'm a kid that grew up in South Africa, uh, mostly Africa, and I landed up over here, which uh, I find is, uh, uh, is something I wouldn't have dreamed about. Right, hmm. so uh, it's not. If you look at the statistics on where people grow up, the probability of you being born and where you land up in the world, or even the probability of being being brought up uh, outside and how you land up here, the odds are pretty slim. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I would say yes. Uh, I, I think uh, 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 somebody smiled at me and <laughs> <laughs> uh, let me progress from step to step to get to where I am. So uh, that's kind of the way I summarize it but yeah a lot of it was through Africa did my undergraduate in Australia mm-hmm. Australia is probably the first place I learned about uh, was that in Perth Melbourne Melbourne, yeah, Melbourne okay. yeah, yeah so I did my uh, when I graduated uh, school in South Africa that was the time when <clears throat> the mining industry was hot Mm. Right, South Africa was known for mining Australia was known for mining so everybody wanted to be in the mining field and I draw a lot of reference between uh, that time and where we are right now, uh, where the miners were at that time, with maybe where uh, the petroleum engineers are right now in terms of that cusp when things started to turn. So yeah, we're definitely at a pivot point. Exactly. So I was at that point wanting to be a mining metallurgical engineer. Ooh, uh, metallurgy? Yeah. That's fancy. I did one internship and I said no ways. Really? <laughs> yeah. So what I, turned you off? Um, just uh, going underground and s- uh, spending a couple of <laughs> days there. And Being a miner? Yeah. <laughs> okay. And then going up into the metallurgical plants and getting that close to a smelter. Oh, no. Uh, yeah, mm-hmm. it, it wasn't as uh, uh, wonderful as I thought it was. <laughs> so that pushed me into the chemical side of things, okay. which took me to Australia. And then uh, when I finished my undergrad there, one of my lecturers there was actually a U.S. professor. And then he's the one that encouraged me to come to the U.S. and do a master's. And then when I got to the U.S., there was an advisor, one of my advisors called Michael Economides. As a chemical engineer, I didn't know who he was. uh, He was a big (laughs) name in the petroleum industry, but I didn't know that. Uh, And uh, he told me, uh, do your thesis under me. I'm great. Every, I'm great. Everybody knows me. I love that. <laughs> I gotta, like, you got to appreciate the confidence. <laughs> yeah. So what university was this? That was the University of Houston. Houston. Yeah. yeah. So uh, yeah, I had a, yeah, so it, I did my undergraduate in chemical and then specialized in petroleum. Mm-hmm. And uh, I had no intention of being a, a petroleum engineer even at that point. And then my advisor would, Whenever we would do stuff uh, that wasn't up to par, he would yell at us and he would kind of say, you'll, you'll never make it in Slumberjay. And What? I didn't know what Slumberjay was as a chemical engineer. Uh, yeah, I was more I focused on the BASF, so mm-hmm. uh, Air Liquid or those type of companies. And I was like, I don't even know what that is. What is that? <laughs> Uh, blue. <laughs> yeah, so <laughs> when we graduated, I uh, interviewed for a couple of jobs, picked a job in the Netherlands, and uh, Slumberjay called me for an interview, and uh, at that time, I decided to go just to show him that I can get a yeah. job, 
job with. I understand the spite, man. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it tends to, to drive me forward. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so that's kind of how I stumbled into the oil field. Um, so was the Netherlands job for Sombergé? No, it no. was uh, again. Uh, I was interviewing at that time with okay. Shell, and that's kind of the direction I wanted to go. And it was more on the chemical side of things, right? As a mm -hmm. chemical engineer, whereas Slumberger was bringing you into the oil field, which I I knew what was based on a textbook. Yeah. Uh, just doing the thesis. Most, gra most graduates do. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but, uh, didn't know too much about it at that time. So, what were they wanted you in for? What frac to start or? Yes, uh, it was going to be a, a program that eventually evolved to be the access program. So okay. accelerating from the field into the technical groups. So, Ooh. Yeah, so it sounded. So nice. tell it, tell it. Yeah, it sounded nice, but yeah. tell us about that. <laughs> so it, it started off uh, wonderfully. I mean, um, it's uh, you landed up rotating through a bunch of districts. Mm -hmm. Your mentors were very big names. Uh, you learned a lot uh, because you're surrounded by great advisors. I mean, guys like Kevin England, Galen from Denver, and then uh, Curtis. Galen's on my list. There you go. Mm -hmm. <laughs> likes of Curtis Kennelty, all those guys were surrounded, even the likes of Bobby Poe, so very big names in the industry. At that point, we didn't quite appreciate who they were, mm -hmm. but we just know they fed us a lot of information. And then you bounce between districts, seeing different fracks. So the learning curve was incredible. Uh, and then came September 11th. Uh, and that was the first introduction to what happens when you have a geopolitical event that... Yeah threatens economy, that threatens commodity prices, and you got to understand a little bit of how uh, commodity prices, uh, GDP, uh, economies all mm -hmm. affect uh, our job stability. So yeah, the, the downturn came, the groups uh, just say three to five year vision on how it, got, it should evolve got condensed into a year, mm -hmm. uh, which to a certain extent that that terrible event kind of defined what the new format for these sort of groups would be. Oh, okay. So although it looked like it was something terrible that was happening uh, at, the, at the business level, it landed up shaping uh, what the new programs were going to be like. So Okay, uh, so your three to five year plan turned to a one year plan for exactly, rotations. Exactly. So about one and a half years in the field and then we got pushed into the technical groups, which at that time were people who had been in the field about seven to ten years. Mm -hmm. So you weren't a very welcome source uh, yeah. <laughs> entrant at that point. Uh, uh, so it seems in a lot of those companies, though, if even today, if you don't start in the field and do some sort of that rotation, there's kind of a little yes. little spot on your back. <laughs> correct, correct, correct. So uh, that's something we had to overcome. So. Uh, the group that was left, uh, quite a few of them disappeared over time just because of the downtown. Like weeded themselves out of industry? Yes. <laughs> and then the remaining that were there kind of uh, had to uh, make up for it with long nights, a lot of working hours, mm -hmm. and it worked well. I mean, you, you landed up uh, accelerating through the technical programs. So uh, that was good. So what were the technical programs like? Um, they were very ad hoc. I think uh, most of the organization had very structured training um, okay. because this was a new group that was being set out. Mm -hmm. uh, it was very unstructured. Um, I didn't, uh, most people when they go through the first three, four years of their career uh, within the large organizations, they probably go through about 
six, seven schools, um, just say four on the lower end. Really? Um, I didn't go through a single one. Uh, <laughs> so, uh, so that, yeah. That's it, so it, ironic to me because of where you are now. So. <laughs> <laughs> so I think that's why I think I, I, uh, I give a lot of, uh, I, I think it's the mentors that were around you. You mm-hmm. got a lot of information from them, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and they kind of get that foundation that's very important. They give you a very good, strong foundation, uh, which, which t- uh, to a large extent helped moving forward. So what were these technical <coughs> programs exactly? Because I know you started me in advanced characterization right. from my operator background. Right. So was this the time when production engineers were actually turning into actual completion teams as opposed to a jack-of-all-trade? or? Right. Yeah, it was a lot more specialized around hydraulic fracturing. Um, okay. So there was an extension into... Uh, taking production data, doing some ray transient analysis, mm-hmm. and understanding what you're doing on the frac side, whether it makes sense from the production side. So hmm. that was a big emphasis, though, on around completions, right, in terms of G-functions, uh, square shut-ins, looking at declines, step-downs, being able to call jobs. Uh, yeah. I think the, the key thing you learned was uh, just in terms of when you look at a, a pressure report uh, from a from a frack truck. Uh, if you don't know much about that operation, some of those pressure signatures you can completely misinterpret them. Yes. Uh, <laughs> so uh, we see that happen. <laughs> uh, so being in the field and understanding what happens to pressure when you lose friction reducer or you uh, uh, lose blender pressure or things like that, you get to have a lot more appreciation for uh, what's happening. Uh, especially when you try to model them. So you started in Saint-Berger and you went really from field to firm as you started rising through the ranks. So you actually started leading some of these technical teams. And if I remember properly, you actually cultivated a handful of them. So can you tell me about that process? And really, what is the difference between being a frac engineer into a technical completions engineer? What's that evolution like? So a a lot of it is... uh, I think a passion for the sciences in mm-hmm. terms of when you see something, uh, you want to understand the physics behind it. Uh, so yes. it's that curiosity, that sort of nerdiness. Nerdiness. Uh, yeah. That Big Bang Theory. Exactly. <laughs> and, and as you move into the technical groups, you get rewarded for that in terms of you pay attention to detail. And then it's that curiosity to go past your domain, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, as engineers, you tend to stay within the engineering domain. You tend to cross to the geoscience if you don't understand something. Mm-hmm. But otherwise, if you understand everything in your world, you stay there. So that curiosity to look and see what's happening everywhere else with all the different data sets uh, starts to differentiate people. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of what sets you up for some of the leaderships, the ability to even communicate across the groups, Yes. appreciate them, uh, give credit where credit is due, take responsibility uh, for actions whether you're right or wrong Mm -hmm. and then spread uh, the reward across the entire group. I think most technical people don't quite understand how important the soft side of things are. I would agree. Uh, So I I think some of it is a problem that's created through uh, the way we reward technical people. You reward technical people for when they l- sometimes look smart on their own. <laughs> uh, so that creates uh, this uh, 
It creates a silo. Yeah, uh, and this need to hog data and um, be know everything more than everybody else. And always present sort of everything you look through as opposed to right. <laughs> what the endpoint actually was. Right, right. <laughs> so I think uh, as you move from the, the technical uh, roles into management roles, uh, there's a struggle most technical people go through. Mm-hmm which is to let go of some of the details or let go of that technical side. And uh, there's a fear of how quick, because that uh, that path uh, evolves so fast. I mean, technology changes so quickly. Yes. The moment you're out of it, uh, you can feel like you've left, left you, you're getting lost or you're getting left behind. So mm-hmm. because of that, some technical people struggle to uh, make the full transition into management. Okay. So uh, I think that's uh, some of the things I learned was how to balance that and uh, how to make sure I still stay technical and when it's important to delegate. And the most important thing I was was uh, mentoring people to be leaders. I found... It's hard to do, isn't it? Right. <laughs> but uh, I think you get the most reward from that. Uh, I think that's probably for a pure technical person's viewpoint that's probably one of the most scary things to do where you release your knowledge and you empower somebody else Mm -hmm. and you don't find that threatening i find uh, when we deal with a lot of people on the technical side that is a genuine fear that nobody wants to address Mm -hmm. so i think once people get over that uh, then uh, there's a lot more progress across teams across the industry i would say well so you're at slumberger how long were you there was it just under 10 Thir- years? 13 years. Oh, 13 years. Yeah, yeah. Okay. So after Slumberger, yeah. tell us about where you went and how you got there. Sure. I, I think m- it might involve Canada. <laughs> yes. Uh, <laughs> I moved into a small private company, uh, Sanjo. Mm-hmm. Uh, I just uh, wanted to do something different. Uh, I think uh, it was more to see uh, when you're in big organizations, uh, sometimes it's... Uh, y- I would say everybody has a three-year age. Yeah, uh, yeah, so, that's a real thing. Yeah, so that three-year age uh, kind of timed with a bunch of events. My mom passed away. Mm-hmm. Uh, I looked at uh, what I was doing, where I was going, and wanted to see if I can influence things a little bit more. And about mm-hmm. that same time... And act change at a higher power, so to speak. Exactly. So at that point, uh, this offer came up, and I said, why not? Uh, I think to a large extent... Even maybe some of it is cultural. Uh, a lot of us grow up trying to please our parents, right? Oh, uh, heck yeah. <laughs> so you always look for that uh, formation. Uh, and you try, depending on how you brought up, you either stay on the conservative side to make everybody happy, or if that pressure wasn't there, you do things a little bit more risky. <laughs> you become the free spirit. <laughs> there you go. The black sheep. <laughs> so I'd say when, when those links are broken, your identity changes a little bit. So mm-hmm. you'll have a different perspective on life, and you, you probably start to focus a little bit more on what is it that you want versus what is it that everybody wants around you, including you, that can make everybody yeah. else happy. <laughs> so, so, yeah. Oh, sorry. So at Sanjo, what, what exactly were you doing? Because it was a smaller company, but, right. I mean, you were still on this technical path. Right. So they asked me to uh, start helping them with their technology side of things, uh, start bringing in some of the uh, engineering solutions side of things just to make the company a little bit more technical. Mm -hmm. Uh, They had, uh, so I was mainly looking at 
uh, trying to start up the technical arm uh, okay. within Sanjal. So uh, I, I realized once you come into a, uh, a small company that you have to do a lot more. Uh, yes. When you're in the big companies, you go a couple of mouse clicks and if you want a new person, the new person appears to <laughs> interview. You interview, send an email. Two weeks later, the person is there with a the laptop and orientation. Whereas in a small private company, everything you do on your own, budget infrared, uh, scope and size, and even if it's put in a computer system or a mainframe system, mm-hmm. you do everything. So it took me out of the my comfort zone. Oh, uh, interesting. Yeah. So I didn't know you actually had a comfort zone. <laughs> yeah. You're so interdisciplinary. <laughs> so I, I figured, uh, I, I found out that there was a lot of stuff that uh, was done behind the scenes that uh, I underestimated. So, okay. And I realized to get something started, it's not always the, the, the nice, uh, easy stuff or the nice, comfortable stuff that you do. Mm-hmm. So... Uh, I started learning a lot more about the finances, started learning a lot more about the HR systems, started learning a lot of stuff that I didn't at that time want to know because I thought I was there to just do technical stuff. Yeah. Uh, but I enjoyed it. I, I, I think that's the, that's the first time I started enjoying working with my managers. Uh, I had a, in terms of, I would say it was a, sometimes you work uh, and it's a good working relationship. But I would mm-hmm. say I had very good working relationships in Slumberjack. But uh, in a private company, I think maybe we had a lot more fun. <laughs> right, so, I like that. Uh, yeah. So, uh, so uh, I think uh, that's what I, I started valuing relationships a lot more when I got into Sanjo. And I, I think even when we went through the, uh, the bankruptcy, I think that relationships was a lot more, uh, I realized the power of relationships. There was opportunities where a bunch of us within our teams and even the leadership team could have bailed out. Uh, I get, yeah, yeah, I mean, we see that, jobs. yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but a core group of us stuck together. And the idea was if we go down, we go down. We all go down together and we'll figure it out. I like that. Uh, but we'll fight all the way till the end. And uh, we stayed optimistic, even though reality was showing certain things. Uh, you stuck with it all the way to the bottom and... Uh, when the bottom came, uh, uh, doors opened, and uh, we stayed loyal to the core groups in terms of making sure that we all jumped into the next ship mm-hmm. uh, and then started up again. So, so uh, what was that next ship? Uh, so, it was uh, there was a capital company called CSL. Uh, at that point, uh, we had conversations with them in the past. Um, they started putting together two, well, a bunch of service companies. Um, one of them was what's become BJ Services. So okay. uh, the two guys that I worked with in uh, in Sanjol was Warren and Caleb. They're the CEO and COOs. Yeah. So originally I was supposed to go into that ship, but then uh, the capital company asked me to look at Premier. Uh, Premier was supposed to be a technology play. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was supposed to be just a six-month stint that I would go back. Six-month stint for yeah, Premier? Yeah. Yep, oh, uh-oh. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so we landed up doing a lot more acquisitions, landed up growing a lot more, and uh, I started seeing our ability to put fingerprints on a lot of stuff and shape a lot of stuff. So mm-hmm. that's kind of where I stuck. So you landed in Denver. I've never left Denver for a really long time. Really? Uh, yeah. I Even even when you were with Sanjal? So in Sanjal, I was uh, jumping in and out of Calgary quite a bit. Yes. Uh, but I always kept 
my base is uh, Denver. Oh. You know? So even when I was in Slumberjay, I did assignments out of Bakersfield. Uh, when I okay. moved first to Denver, I was supposed to be in Bakersfield most of the time, but I kept my bases Denver. Then I picked up roles in Slumberjay where I was supposed to be in Oklahoma a lot, but I kept my base in Denver. <laughs> and then I did the last role in Slumberjay was also out of Boston quite a bit, but Boston. I kept my base in okay. Denver. So, so far I've uh, held on strong I to know. Denver. <laughs> I'm still holding on strong <laughs> to Denver as well, or yeah. maybe Golden, I can't decide. <laughs> well, okay, so I love your story, but I have to say, you left something out that I really want you to hit on. Sure. And I think a part of your success is really the professions of your parents right. and all of the body language analytics that has helped you develop the like the technique of soft skills that you have. Right. So can you tell me a little bit about that? Sure, sure. Uh, growing up, my dad used to do, started off quite a bit in statistics, educational research methods and stuff like that. So... I still remember when I was uh, barely 10, uh, it was the old days when uh, uh, printers would print out a bunch of ones and zeros and... Oh, uh, binary? Yeah. Yeah. And and then he would make me, on my summer holidays, uh, put a bunch of numbers together, we'd add stuff together, and then we'd add stuff divided by the... So I, I realized, I didn't know at that time, but I was doing... Averages. I was okay. doing standard deviation. You were normalizing things. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, it, it was maybe they, maybe they knew you were going to go into oil. <laughs> so, and then uh, the next internships we were doing, I was doing with him, I was doing things like ANOVAs, MANOVAs, mm-hmm. uh, F-test, P-test, stuff like that. And at that time, again, I, I didn't know what I was doing. Uh, when I got to college in, uh, in Melbourne, uh, my dad asked me to pick a statistical a statistics course. Uh, okay, I like that. Yeah, so I said, sure, why not? Uh, and I picked it up, and at that point I had flashbacks in terms of now I know what I was doing. So, <laughs> so I think he shaped a lot of my direction towards the numbers. Yes. The other thing, they both eventually moved into uh, psycholo- psychology, mm-hmm. uh, child psychology, behavioral psychology, etc. But uh, I would, very from a very young age, uh, we learned that they would watch us very carefully on how we react facially, how we react uh, <laughs> with our words and stuff like that. So very quickly you learned how to... Mask it? Mask it. Okay. <laughs> or to create an emotion when it's not really there or to I, I hide can do it. that. <laughs> yeah. So uh, the soft skills uh, side of things started uh, uh, subconsciously being developed. Mm-hmm. Uh, so uh, as I grew older and older, uh, and my mom and dad would publish papers and books, I would read them, and I kind of had an inkling towards uh, picking up material on body language, yeah. uh, those sort of cues. And I, I find it's still very, very important. I still use it almost on a daily basis. He does. I know he does. <laughs> <laughs> when you engage with customers or you engage with uh, your employees or everybody else, the the unspoken communication mm-hmm. is very very important uh, absolutely if you don't pay attention to that uh, it can set you back uh, in relationships mm-hmm. whether they be fruitful or not fruitful you can kind of maybe get a head start on some of that stuff 
one thing you did tell me is you said, Catherine, always pay attention to the feet when you're talking to someone. Right. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I always use that. (laughs) Well, Baloo, you are one of the best that I have met at big picture analysis. I mean, you know how to hone down, but you're able to connect different blocks together in order to figure out what basically the gift of foresight. So we have seen... I guess this last year being 2019, we're seeing about 50% more uh, bankruptcies, 11 or 7 happening. We are seeing M&As that, uh, I don't know if you believe in mergers, but we are seeing acquisitions (laughs) or (laughs) rebrands. There are some really big rumors flying around about end-of-year layoffs that are coming from not necessarily the real super majors, but potentially Texas-sized super majors. Um, and we are seeing graduates, you know, 400, 500, a class of petroleum, and the market just doesn't seem to be demanding that. So from your perspective and what you're seeing between your analytics of India, China, the United States, Canada, what's happening to our industry right now? What is this pivot point exactly? Right. So uh, I do think it's, it's a natural evolution. Um, I, like I mentioned earlier on, I, I think the mining industry went through it. Um, the oil and gas industry is probably heading for that. Mm-hmm. Uh, you've seen this shift uh, uh, towards clean energy. Um, I would say about a decade ago, we thought that wouldn't happen. Uh, we're in denial about the pace at which it would happen. Okay. We knew it would happen, but uh, completely underestimated the rate at which it would happen. Mm-hmm. Um, I think when Europe started stopped a lot of subsidies for the solar companies, that was the first uh, flag that this thing looks like it's got a lot of legs. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think over time, uh, you start seeing that there's still a lot, lot of debate as to when exactly that shift is going to accelerate. I do think it's coming. Uh, and... Uh, I think to a large extent, automation may accelerate a lot of that. Okay. Um, um, by automation, I mean uh, I, I drive a car that I bought for the first it's the first car in 15 years, <laughs> and, and things have changed a lot from the last car I drove. And <laughs> one of the things I realize is it does a lot of stuff for me. Hmm. Uh, that f- uh, because I started driving, uh, I started driving as a kid and a place called Homeland called Transkei, and there uh, I started driving at 13. Um, uh, you could s- uh, accelerate a car, pull the clutch out, get the wheels, wheels to spin, come to a corner, pull the handbrake up, and you do You were a lot. popping those Yui type <laughs> things. Uh, you could do a lot of cool stuff with the car. Uh, <laughs> now you can't. Uh, I mean, if I push the throttle down too fast, the mm-hmm. traction control takes over. If I start speeding up towards a car and then yelling at the kids to... Uh, <laughs> Road rage st- takes yeah, over. <laughs> it'll, it'll, no, it'll slow me down if yeah. I don't see there's a car in front of me. Mm-hmm. So uh, I do think if cars start talking with each other, um, then uh, insurance companies will probably want us uh, to have cars that talk into each other so that our premiums stay low. Mm-hmm. And if we want a car that doesn't want to talk and can speed when we say speed, then we're going to have to pay for it. And I don't think uh, the new generations coming in are going to want a car that, uh, one, you have to pay that much on an insurance premium and uh, they can't, afford it. can't afford it. So mm-hmm. 
uh, I think what Uber is doing with uh, automating the cars may accelerate some of that transition. So mm-hmm. I've even seen Amazon talking about fleets coming out with yeah. uh, electrification. So the transition is coming. Uh, I think right now what you've seen this year is uh, a lot of it is probably driven by GDP. Um, I think the emerging countries between Africa, uh, some of that emerging Europe and Southeast Asia, they have the potential to drive GDP quite high. Mm-hmm but they need some sort of investment or some sort of trade. Um, I think most of the countries in Europe and even the U.S., trade policies have changed quite a bit, which... uh, Well, they're under negotiation. Exactly. (laughs) If you believe what's happening. (laughs) (laughs) So I think that's kind of what we started uh, looking at. uh, Well, I I was curious about uh, probably over the last year or so, and you started seeing global GDPs starting to slow down. And uh, I think that's what you're seeing right now is this fear that, uh, I mean, Europe has already gone negative interest rates. You see the Fed react and start cutting interest rates. Mm -hmm. Um, Before the downturn that we had, um, oil always had a premium uh, in terms of, uh, I would say, pre-2010, everybody was worried about supply. Yes. In terms of can you ramp up, if one player goes offline, how do you make that up? Prices we actually had one player go offline exactly. last week, so we'll get to that one. <laughs> so I think uh, a lot of that is starting to be realized now in terms of, I think, after the last downturn, people took away that premium. They mm-hmm. said the U.S. has got so much uh, hydrocarbons that there's no longer a problem with supply. Mm-hmm. So that premium that was there on oil for geopolitical risks slowly disappeared. I think these last attacks have kind of said that that premium probably needs to be there uh, mm. and that's probably what you're seeing is it 10% up 20% up no uh, so I do think it's either you'll get WTI and Brent coming in a little bit closer or you'll see a little bit of premium on our but still uh, in the end our biggest threat is GDP uh, just the fact that it's starting to slow down mm-hmm. yeah yeah there's still growth which is good yes uh, so the GDP numbers globally are still uh, 2% and above. The problem comes if the U.S. stalls, it generally has a ripple effect across the entire world. Mm-hmm. And that's probably uh, one of the things I'm concerned about. So is are the China negotiations really hurting our industry as much? I mean, I understand we get pipe, but right. are they hurting us as much as people are hyping up in the news? So... Uh, Yes, I think from a trade standpoint, it's hurting us. Okay. Uh, um, I think it's something that needs to be done, though, because uh, unfortunately, uh, yeah, timing always sucks on these sort of <laughs> things. But I think some of the stuff that's done with IP and some of the trade practices, I, I agree, they're not fair. Mm-hmm. Um, whether that's the right approach or stuff, uh, I don't really uh, focus too much on that. I just look at the numbers in mm-hmm. terms of GDP slowing, so there needs to be a a different strategy around that. Maybe, yes. <laughs> um, so in the next, let's say, let's call it 10 years. Okay. Okay. We are seeing, you know, the layoffs coming. There are articles coming out about the death of shale. Who wins and who loses? And is the Permian really going to stay the hot player that we all, or I guess everybody's sort of focused on? It's got everyone's attention. Meanwhile, we have basins that 
are always you know slow and steady producers, but no one's paying that much attention. Right. So who wins? Who loses? Who draws? Yeah, I mean, uh, the Permian has always been in the picture. Just that, uh, I mean, when I started my career, uh, the, Permian, the shale revolution, really. Yeah, yeah. The the Permian was a big play, and then the shale plays took off, mm-hmm. and that kind of pushed it across a bunch of different resources. Uh, so. Uh, I do think uh, the the Delaware, especially as a big core area, mm-hmm. um, if you look at uh, operator count, I think every basin has an S curve. Um, we compare it to uh, any product uh, yeah. when it initially is conceptual, it's bottom part of the S curve, and then the market ad- accepts it and starts to consume it, and it has huge growth. Just like that, a basin, a uh, couple of entrants come in, few operators. They start to make something work, then everybody jumps in, mm-hmm. and then it bends over when everybody realizes the extent of the basin. Uh, yes, and then you start, even though the well count is going up on the S curve and flattening out, you start to get a collapse in terms of number of players. Mm-hmm. Players exit, mergers, acquisitions, bankruptcies, etc. Uh, so that's typically a maturity cycle of every basin. Um, so I do think, if you look at the basins across the U.S. Um, you look at the back and it's acting like a mature basin. Um, you look at uh, something like the Eagleford, it's creating another S-curve. It's not clear if that's coming from some of the chalk stuff that's extending into Louisiana. Mm-hmm. Um, you look at Delaware, it's still on a rapid growth. It's doing very well, right? Well, I feel like everyone's focused on Delaware because very few have it figured out. Yeah, uh, and I think so far people think there's still quite a bit of uh, running room uh, yeah. around Delaware. You see a lot of stuff moving into New Mexico. Mm-hmm. and that's We've seen some big acquisitions happen. Right, right, right. So I, I do think uh, that may have uh, a lot more le- uh, leg room. And I think operators even uh, are worried about um, in terms of the declines. I think the mm-hmm. shales sort of have got a bad name. I don't think all of them... Uh, have to have a bad name, Uh, but you see a bunch of operators talking about uh, diversifying to conventional resources. They call it, it plays with shallower declines, Yeah. right? And that's where things like the Powder River, the stuff up in Uinta, some of the Austin Chalk, some Mm -hmm. of the other players start coming in because of that. But those are legacy assets. They need more than just... water flooding sometimes. Right, right, exactly. So are people willing to put in the funds that, I don't know, lead to enhanced recovery or lead to some sort of revitalizing stimulation type system? Um, the, I would say it, not short term. Not short term. Not short term, right. So I, I do think the next year, two years is probably quite critical for uh, the oil industry, mm-hmm. uh, mainly because, uh, one, U.S. production has been going up and up and up. We're hoping that curtails out. Yeah, and we're, we're still, hoping. <laughs> yeah, uh, and we're still trying to figure out what a global GDP does, right? Yeah. Uh, so I think that's probably the key thing that's going to drive how much investment is put into a bunch of these assets. Mm-hmm. The death of shale. Mm-hmm. I don't know that you necessarily agree with that statement, but we are seeing exit strategies be renegotiated from private equity. We are seeing, uh, they're calling it Wall Street is turning its back on the shale revolution. Is it a reservoir engineer's fault? Because we 
fudged our B factors. We, we made that P50 look just a tad better than it should have. We've jacked up the, uh, I guess, inter interdisciplinary approach to uh, spacing analysis. Is it sort of that interdisciplinary team, that reservoir engineer who's only using ARIES and not necessarily relying on science, is it our fault that we are making the money pull back a little bit? Um, yes and no. I, I think uh, <laughs> some of it is incentivized uh, to uh, accelerate a lot of that. But uh, I would say the shale plays have been successful to a large extent because some of those pioneering efforts in terms of they go do something that doesn't make sense from science standpoint. I, I still An exploration standpoint. <laughs> exactly. I, I still, as a frack engineer, I still look back at about almost a decade ago when the slick orders came out. Mm -hmm. It didn't make sense. How can you not suspend And now it's everyone's secret yeah, sauce. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, I would say you need some of that. Uh, maybe we had too much of that. Uh, mm -hmm. And I think the scale of things is what make it made it worse. Mm -hmm. So I think even the financial incentives and the, peop the reward system is probably what uh, made it a little bit worse uh, from the investor standpoint, shareholder standpoint, et cetera. So do you think the financial, the money, will start relying more on science than just the DCA analysis moving forward? Because um, uh, that would be a big pivot. Right, right. Uh, so I think that pivot in the U.S. is uh, probably still a ways to come okay. uh, because uh, it's, it's, I always look at it in terms of when I try to recruit for a reservoir engineer, of the 100 applicants that apply, probably 90 are DCA people. Yeah. Maybe 10 are actually simulation engineers. I was one of them. <laughs> so uh, I would say that transition is probably uh, ways away. Some of the AI stuff is starting to fill that gap mm -hmm. in terms of it's uh, trying to look at some physics-based training and uh, mm -hmm. apply that to uh, the production data that exists to put some intelligence to how things are forecast. Mm -hmm. So I would say, yes, I think it will improve, uh, but is everybody going to jump into a numerical uh, simulator? I don't think so. Miss uh, yeah. Gimmons uh, told me, she's told me for years, um, something like all models are wrong and some are useful. Yes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> exactly. I was like, thanks so much. <laughs> um, so... We have an election year coming up, and it has been alluded to that there during the debates, uh, some people are predicting another 2008 crash. So if that happens and our market is already down, what do you sort of foresee happening because of the geopolitical effects? Do we go further down? Are we back down to $35 a barrel, or do we stay consistent between 55 to 60 Yeah, I would say, I mean, I still think numbers in the 30s, Makes sense if we head into a recession. We might be. Yeah. So <laughs> if we if we head into a recession, yes, uh, I, I still put that likelihood. I think I think the, a lot of the governments around the world are intervening to try to stimulate uh, the economies. Right. Mm -hmm. uh, we saw yesterday of China is trying to promote nightlife. <laughs> they're, 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 it's incentivizing businesses to stay open longer, mm -hmm. get people to spend through more hours on the day. Yeah. Therefore, stimulate the local economy. The U.S. Fed is cutting interest rates to stimulate growth. Mm -hmm. 
Mm-hmm. So I do think the governments are reacting in the right way to prevent a global slowdown. Uh, so uh, I think I'm not worried. Uh, I, I was worried about two quarters ago because we saw things slowing down and there was not enough reaction. Yeah, two quarters ago, it wasn't, we were following the peak and pit model, but it wasn't our typical predicted peak and pit model. So in a way, we were going off course than what was, I guess, forecasted for this industry. Right. It was kind of a scary time. You don't think that's going to shoot back around? Uh, I'm not worried yet. Uh, <laughs> that's good. Yeah, yeah, so. We'll do another podcast <laughs> when you are worried. <laughs> yeah. So I'd say so far, I think, uh, again, I've re- liked the way uh, the different uh, regions have reacted to mm-hmm. try to stimulate things. Um, so sh- I'm, it's, I'm not as pessimistic uh, right now. I'm still pessimistic relative to about a year and a half ago, but uh, I don't think it's doom and gloom yet. Okay, I like that. That makes me feel <laughs> feel a little bit better. Um, but we are still seeing layoffs. Yes. And one of the things that's coming with the layoff, um, especially here around Denver, is a lot of them are happening quietly. But I'm just saying, uh, these people come in, they do their jobs, they hit their markers, they hit their goals, and yet they're still getting laid off. And we've always been sort of a private industry. What happens and stays confidential at sea level never really trickles down to quote-unquote worker bees. Sorry, I can't think of a better term right now. Um, but do we as an industry need to start sharing how the money flows through the company better so that people have a better understanding and possibly feel more motivated to, I guess, produce a better quality product so that when they hit their KPIs, it actually means something? Right. Uh, I mean, I think... It's easy if it's a public company, right? All the financial records are disclosed. and. Uh, but you'd be surprised how many people don't go look at them. Right. So I think some of that is cultural, right? Uh, yeah. I think uh, I always look back at uh, you know, when I, I, our company went through the last bankruptcy, mm-hmm. in my previous employer. Uh, it was amazing how when you... when everything around you is falling apart and uh, you go speak to somebody and ask them how is everything going uh, they generally don't want to know right? yeah. and even when you tell them I don't think we're going to make it uh, the optimistic side comes out and says no no we're going to be fine it's like, down no. south we call it rose colored <laughs> goggles or beer goggles <laughs> right. so I think some of it is just cultural right uh, it's human behavior mm-hmm. people don't want to be confronted with that because they don't have a solution for it. Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah, uh, some of it is, again, if you get um, if you get used to, uh, if you have a curiosity for it, you'll naturally stay plugged in. So creating that culture is something that needs to exist. I think over time, if people start seeing a lot of these surprise turns in the way companies fold and You'll mm-hmm. probably get people being a lot more aware of it. Yes. And naturally looking at it. But so far it hasn't. So you've been in and out of the shell boom. You've seen the bust. You've seen the geopolitical effects. During times like this, there are good managers can make decent people even better. Bad managers can ruin an entire team. So from your perspective, if you were passing along feedback to managers helping navigate their teams through these precarious issues, 
what would you say is something to avoid? What's been one of the more detrimental decisions you've seen <laughs> or actions you've seen done that is just not the way to go? Right. Uh, I mean, I think communication is key, right, mm-hmm. um, in terms of there's always some level of transparency. Um, it's, oh. it's, yeah, so I think to a large extent, transparency is probably the most important thing. Um, there's uh, details that depend whether you're private or public, you can't get into on financials. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I think uh, generally the employees should always uh, stay in tune with how their business is doing mm-hmm. in terms of how sales is doing or how production is doing or how costs are going uh, and uh, get an understanding of how they stand relative to their peers. Mm-hmm. So uh, even if your manager isn't communicating with you, it is an individual's responsibility to make himself aware. Mm -hmm. Uh, So managers, yeah, key thing is transparency. And some managers are good at communicating uh, frankly and honestly. Most people don't like confrontation or don't like getting into uncomfortable conversations. Well, it doesn't have to be confrontation but I agree with the uncomfortable Uncomfortable, right right. so if you and I think uh, it's always uh, some managers are still worried about uh, creating fear and losing employees and then what happens if the fear was not real Uh, yeah so whoops uh, yeah so so that's kind of uh, that's why I say a a certain level of uh, trust and communication needs to exist Mm -hmm. within the group it's like I can sit my guys down and say, this is what I'm worried about. Mm -hmm. And because there's been a history of, yes, we get through things, it's not, uh, we worried about it and we don't have a plan about it. You didn't cry wolf, so to speak. Exactly, yeah. So I think uh, the trust and uh, communication go hand in hand. Mm -hmm. Um, So for me, because I'm relatively broke these days, (laughs) if I wanted to start investing, and we know what's, or we have rumors of what is to come, both oil and in the market itself. Should I start betting against the market in general? Should I start buying a bunch of puts and <laughs> keeping my fingers crossed? Or what would your, what would be your strategy right now for investing? Yeah, I would say short-term uh, things are going to be pretty volatile. Okay. Uh, so I, I would say... Uh, a lot of what you've seen is people, as soon as they're making gains, especially oil field mm-hmm. services, oil field sector, people are realizing their gains and cashing out, mm-hmm. uh, mainly because the sector has got quite a while before it turns around. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, I think the other sectors, ex- especially if it's very consumer dependent, that will depend on how our GDP does. Yeah. Right. So <laughs> in terms of consumer confidence uh, and stuff like that. So. Uh, I would say this is a, uh, this is going to be, we're going to end into a quarter where you'll expect a little bit more volatility. So uh, if you've made gains, uh, I would say realize them. Uh, <laughs> yeah. and Cash then, out. <laughs> and then look for opportunities to get back into sectors that make sense at that point. How much of your retirement is in oil right now? Not much. <laughs> I, I would say, unfortunately, it's an industry-wide thing, right? I think a lot of money has left the 
the oil sector, oil and gas sector. It's gone into different funds within energy, but yeah, exactly. Yeah, but just because uh, it's left, well, it's not really left oil, but because it's cautious on oil, right. there's still AI, there's still tech based, and we're seeing right. a lot of that slowly start popping up. Right. So, um, so you're quite busy throughout the days. And yes. I know because I used to try and get on your schedule. So can you please take me through a 12 a.m. to 11.59 p.m. routine schedule you have? What do you do? What sort of preps you for the day? Because there's no way you can always be on. But you're quite productive. You're quite organized. So how do you do that? How, how can someone mimic you? So I think um, my behavior has changed a lot uh, over the last decade or more because uh, of benjamin <laughs> yeah uh, yeah i would say when you kids <laughs> yeah as soon as you're single you can have a certain routine that's uh i worked a lot of hours mm-hmm. uh read a lot of books uh got into projects that i didn't need to be getting into just to get the experience and the depth yeah and uh know as much as i could um then once kids uh marriage and kids came along I try to balance things. The service industry is a lot more flexible in terms of hours. How uh, so? Uh, to a large extent, uh, as long as the work gets done, you're fine. Yeah, uh, like the two-on-two-off, like you can travel is what you mean, yeah. essentially. Uh, and I mean, my routine has always allowed me to drop kids off, pick up kids. Mm. So in there's certain quarters in the year where I make sure I have the time to drop kids. Uh, and then I'll work on most of my days, meetings, conference calls, uh, business development. And then I'll make sure I pick up the kids. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then I'll pick up the kids close to 3.34. Mm-hmm. And then from there until 5, I'll play with them. Mm-hmm. And sometimes I'll put them to bed, make dinner, with, have family time. Yeah. But as soon as they go to bed... I usually doze off with them, and then I'll come back downstairs. So from about 10 p.m. till about 2 a.m., I find is a good time for me to get quiet time work okay. uh, in terms of the phone doesn't ring. Yes. Emails are not consistently coming. It does coming. ring sometimes. <laughs> yeah, that's true. <laughs> it's, it's probably me. <laughs> <laughs> so I find yeah, I'm very productive during that time. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then you know, close to 3, I'll go to bed. Mm-hmm. And usually my daughter wakes me up around 5.30. Yeah. And then so you don't need much sleep. Or you do, and you're just <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you've I, given up on it. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah I, I would say that's, uh, those are, I would say, two quarters of the year it's like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's a quarter in the year where it's quite relaxed. Yeah. And I think some people get stressed about that. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> but I, I've, uh, I try not to worry when I have a little bit more. I mean, even with the team over here, when if you're not busy, don't come into the office. Yeah. Uh, because when you're busy, you... You will be in the office. Be, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Well, you'll be working a lot of hours, right? Uh, well, you so. duct tape us to our chairs, so... <laughs> 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 I'm just kidding, I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, we try to... Uh, I mean, I, I would say uh, I try to keep the balance. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's not a balance like most people see it in terms of... Uh, I try... I don't think it's easy to disconnect work and life it's work-life integration exactly and when you when you're down you make sure you spend more time with the family and what's important to you Mm -hmm. 
when you're busy, yes, you're busy. And yes. People understand it. But as long as you know how to go back and forth and you don't try to always force a balance, life is a lot easier. What would you tell yourself 15 years, like in the past, if you, knowing what you know now and remembering where you were, what's the advice you would have for yourself? Um, probably to focus more on relationships. Hmm. Yeah, I, I think as a technical External person. External relationships or like managerial relationships? Uh, both. Oh, okay. Uh, I think uh, one of the things I learned from the last downturn is uh, I make it a point for at least three days a week I go have coffee with somebody that's... Or you do a podcast. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> but I try not to make it about business. Yeah. It's just social networking, mm-hmm. right? Uh, you can't wait for a downturn to start networking. That's true. When a lot of people do. <laughs> yeah. When the downturn comes, uh, everybody is... It's not that nobody wants to take your call. Everybody feels pressured to take the call mm-hmm. because they don't always have a solution. Exactly. Right. So uh, I think if networking should be a continuous process. It should be somewhere scheduled. It's like when I run a simulation, I don't have to sit and look at it for 20 or 30 minutes. I should go have coffee with somebody uh, and then come back. <laughs> Wait for the results. <laughs> <There> you <go. laughs> uh, do you have anything, any tips or tricks on how to decompress? Um, it's probably different for everybody else. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, my decompression is usually playing something with the kids. Yeah, kid time. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. So, uh, yeah, that's kind of how I find that uh, what they find fascinating and what they find interesting uh, changes your perspective on everything. So, Are you teaching them the body language stuff? Uh, no, not yet. <laughs> I don't want them to figure it out. <laughs> I need the upper hand for You need it through the teenage years. <laughs> yes. Do you have a podcast, book, or other resource that you would recommend that's brought value to you that, honestly, someone like me would need to read? Um, there's a lot of books, actually. Uh, You're not going to say my podcast? No, yes, I'm kidding. I'm, I'm so kidding. <laughs> I thought that was a given. <laughs> no, I'm kidding. <laughs> so, yeah, I would say I bounce between them. Uh, I think the, the some of the books that gave me an appreciation for how things work in the industry are the old Wall Street books. Old Wall Street books? Yeah. What are you talking about? Walk Down Wall Street. It basically, Wall Street? Yeah, okay. it basically talks about how stock markets were created, the, oh. uh, how they all link together, mm-hmm. how stocks relate to GDP, everything. It kind of gave you a... Kind of the financial, follow the money. Yeah, yeah. So I find those books I found uh, very interesting. And then there's the... Uh, these are the religious books, uh, which I find are also good in terms of keeps me grounded, keeps me yes. focused. Uh, so I generally bounce between a couple of those. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I would say in terms of from an industry standpoint, I would say uh, uh, the Wall Street books are probably uh, gave me a little bit of appreciation as to why my industry acts the way it does Yeah. in terms of is cyclic. Well, Baloo, thank you so much for joining us for the Mm. very first episode. You have brought such value, and I cannot wait to trick you into another one. (laughs) Thank you very much. (laughs) All the best with us. All right, guys, what did you think about Baloo? He is one of the hardest working leaders that I know and takes such strides to understand the big picture and ripple effects of our industry from the ground up. 
He is definitely a rising titan. Anyway, if you have any thoughts or questions for Baloo, you can shoot them to me via Facebook, Instagram, or the website at www.thecrudeaudacity.com. I will lock him down for another episode here soon. All right, guys, before you go, if today's episode brought you any sort of value, please rate, review, and subscribe. The more five stars we get, the more often we're able to deliver quality content from industry influencers. And as always, if you have a topic or influencer you would like us to feature, you can get in touch with us via Facebook, Instagram, or at our website, www.thecrudeaudacity.com. We greatly appreciate your engagement, and until next week, give them hell.